Today would mark the halfway point of our journey through Ephesians. We are at Ephesians 4, chapter 1. Ephesians 4, no, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 is how I should say that. Um, and this morning we're going to look at a picture of a healthy church. I think as Paul transitions from chapters 1, through one 2, and 3, talking about deep theology and, and things that God has planned in eternity past, he transitions from there to talk about very specific practical ways in which that lives out. Um, and today we're going to see that picture of a healthy church. That's where he starts off. If you go to the doctor, um, as many of us do and often do, uh, your doctor is going to examine you to see uh, what kind of ways you might not be uh, living up to a normal life. They're going to do tests. They're going to um, maybe do blood work. They're going to check your temperature, all kinds of ways that they're going to check to see if you are healthy. What they do is they have a, this kind of model of what a healthy person should look like in general. And in what ways are you not matching that? And in a similar way, I think Paul gives us a little bit of a picture of a healthy church. And as we look at these three aspects of what a healthy church is, there's a lot more to what a healthy church is. But as we look at these three specific ones that Paul brings out, we need to have the attitude of, okay, this is a healthy church. Are we living up to that? In what ways can we continue to do that? Your doctor might say to you, hey, you're doing good. Uh, blood pressure's fine. But I would also start adding on uh, maybe doing some workouts or maybe drinking more water or whatever that might be. Even if we're healthy and good, our doctor will often give us advice on how we continue. We can continue to be healthy and continue to do good. I think that's what's going to happen this morning as we look at this picture of a healthy church. I believe that we uh, fit the, the description that Paul's going to describe here. But I also think we can fit it better. Right. That's what Paul often does. He says, you're doing great and you can do even better at it. So let's pray this morning that we'd be able to to look at what Paul has to say here about a healthy church. Pray that we would be living up to this picture and that we would do it even better. So let's pick up in chapter four, verses one through 16. I'm going to read that for you. Ephesians chapter four, one through 16 says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us, According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceit, deceitful schemes." 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. Uh, what a passage. And there's some stuff in there that's kind of sounded crazy as we read through there. We're going to go back and look at that and see what that means. But off the bat, Paul says this on, in verse 1. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. When he says that calling, he is referring back to chapters 1, 2, and 3. And all the amazing things that were said there. That we were um, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be adopted as sons. That we are called one new man. Um, there are no more ethnic divisions that split us up. No more divisions within our body. We are one new man in the place of two. And we've been gifted this gift of the mystery of the gospel that was hidden in the past. But now we're called to be those who carry this mystery um, to the ends of the earth. I mean, all kinds of descriptions of our call, what it is that Christians are called to be. And Paul says, or Paul says live in a manner worthy of that calling, of the title you've been given, of the name that's been bestowed upon you, live up to that. Which brings up the point, we have, to, we have to hold two things in our hand, right? We have to hold two things. One, we have to hold chapter one, two, and three, like deep theological things, truths about our salvation and how that works out. We have to hold on to that theology and, and praise God for it. But if we just hold on to that, uh, we won't hold on to chapters 4, 5, and 6, which says, since this is true, this is what your life should look like. We have to do both of those things. Live in a manner worthy of the calling. Live out what I've just described to you, this great, grand, amazing plan that God has devised and made you a part of. Live that out. So where does Paul start when he says, okay, we've looked at all this theology. Now let's start looking at the practical. Where does he first start? The very first thing he talks about is unity. I find that interesting, but not interesting. Like to me, it seems obvious. I'm not saying that unity is the most important thing uh, that, for God, but it's very close and near and dear to her, his heart. So when we think of a healthy church, number one, a healthy church strives for unity. A healthy church strives for unity. Unity is extremely important to God. If you think back to what Jesus did in his ministry, just the words he said, John chapter 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you would love one another by this. All people know you're my disciples. People know that we're disciples of Jesus by the love we have for one another, by that unity. He goes on later on in John chapter 17. And when he prays his high priestly prayer, when Jesus was looking forward to the next day, dying on the cross, his prayer for us, his people, was that we would be one, like he and the Father are one. He prayed that we would be united. That was his, his dying prayer, was that we would be one and be united. Unity is extremely important to Jesus. And you've probably heard this saying, there's no such thing as a lone ranger. And I think this verse, this, this idea of unity, makes that point. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christians. We don't get the option to say, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be a part of the Christian community. We don't get to say, I want to be uh, saved, but I don't want to be part of the saved people. Uh, we don't get to be separate from them. That's not an option. A Christian separated from a community is weird. 
It's, it's, not, it's not normal. And now I know there are extenuating circumstances that do put us in nursing homes or separate us for a time, but a Christian outside of community is in some sense kind of like an oxymoron, doesn't make sense. An unchurched Christian? Um, no, that shouldn't be because when we're saved, we're not only saved to God, we're saved to his people, united with them. You can think of it like this. If any of us were walking around outside and we saw just a hand laying on the ground, that would be weird, right? We would think something's going on. Why is this hand not connected to the body where it's supposed to be? Because a hand is not a human, right? It's part of a human, but it's not the human itself. In addition, if I drove up to the church on one morning and I saw a brick or two like off of the building laying on the parking lot, I would think, what have they done now? Like, what is going on with the building, right? Because it's weird for a brick to be separated from the building. It's not supposed to be. And in the same way, Christians are not supposed to be separated from the community. It's not healthy for them. It's not good for them. And it's not the way it's designed to be. A hand is not a human. A brick is not a building. And a Christian is not a community. And when the Bible talks about Jesus dying for us, it says that his name is Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. When it says later on in Ephesians, we're going to look in chapter 5, it says that he died for his bride, his people. So when Jesus died, he died for a community. So we need to preserve this unity. And notice in verse 3, it says this. It says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain it. Let's praise God really quick that it's not our job that we make unity. We just maintain our unity. We don't make our unity. We maintain what's already established. When Jesus died, he died to unify us. In chapter 2, remember it said he died to create one new man in the place of two. And so making peace. Jesus made unity. We just maintain it. Um, all of us got here, I'm assuming, um, by vehicle. None of you made your car. None of you made that car. Um, unless, Jake, have you, uh, do you drive a Newell here? You make Newell coaches, right? So he doesn't own a Newell. So none of you made your vehicle, I'm assuming. You didn't make any of your vehicles, did you? No. Okay. We got some talented guys out here. That's why I'm worried about my illustration here. But none of you made your cars, right? But you maintain them. You put gas in them. You change the tires. You change the oil. Or at least you get somebody else to change that oil. You maintain that vehicle so that it's nice and healthy and works properly. But you didn't make it. You're just taking care of what was given to you or what you purchased. In the same way, Jesus redeemed us and purchased unity for us. He created and established unity in the church, and then he hands that unity to us. And we are to maintain that unity because it took a mighty act of God to bring us together, to unify us. It took a mighty act of God to do that. And it doesn't take anything less than that to keep us together. So we maintain unity by right actions. Really, you could say we maintain unity by Christ-like actions. It took Jesus dying on the cross to unite us. It took Christ-like conduct on the cross to unite us. Therefore, it takes Christ-like conduct in our church to maintain that unity. Notice the, the tools that were given for this job. Verse 2, it says this, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These are all... Um, these are all qualities that allow us to maintain unity, and these are all qualities and characteristics we find in Christ. Humility, the, the king of the universe, stepping down from heaven into his own creation, 
to be with us. That's humility, gentleness, to, to touch the, the leper in his sickness and to heal him. To have patience, how long the Lord was patient with us up until the right proper time to send Jesus into this world and bearing with one another in love. In love, he died on the cross for our sins. So all these qualities were expressed in Jesus in order to make unity. Therefore, all these qualities need to be expressed in us so we maintain unity. A church can stay unified if the members are humble and don't think they're Preferences are more important than other people's preferences. If we're gentle with one another, thinking of how we say things to one another, not in a harsh way, not in a way that would, would bring ill feelings, but in a way that would be kind and help, helpful to that person. Bearing with one another in love. And as you hear these things, those are tough things to do, but it's, it's, in, in some sense it's a grace because God is telling you, I know it's hard. That's why I'm commanding it of you. That's why I'm giving my spirit to you. I know those things are hard. Trust me, I've done it for millennia and I'll continue to do it. And here you guys can have that help too with the spirit living inside us. So nothing more than Christ's conduct in the cross was needed to create unity and nothing less than Christ-like conduct in the church is needed to maintain unity. But we don't just maintain unity with our, uh, the way we treat one another. We also maintain unity by believing the same things. Notice as we get to verse 6, there's a repeated one, 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 one in that verse. Uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, over all and through all. We all believe the same things. Christians believe the same core doctrines. Now, we might have divisions as far as having different denominations. There are some denominations where these things get expressed in different ways. But we can hold hands with those other denominations saying that, hey, we believe in one God and one faith. Uh, there's one baptism, which means that we've been uh, forgiven of our sins and we're expressing that to the world. Right? All these core doctrines of what these things believe, we can hold hands across the aisle with our other churches in this town to say, hey, we want to partner with you guys for the gospel. Uh, we may think that the day-to-day -day church looks a little different, but really the overall church doesn't. Uh, we, we are, we are, we're maintaining unity there, but I think really um, this is encouraging us to remember as we come into this room and we think about how we were saved, we're not united because uh, we all love the same things or love the same sports teams or have the same jobs or uh, we don't have the same um, histories, we don't have the same past, but we do all have the same future. We all have that hope of being with the Lord one day. So when we think of a healthy church, the first place Paul goes, he says a healthy church strives for unity. But he also says this, a healthy church recognizes gifts. A healthy church recognizes gifts. When we pick up in verse 7, it says, But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we have this unity. We're all one, but... We're each gifted with different gifts from the Lord. There are several uh, lists in the Bible of spiritual gifts that God gives uh, to us. Prophecy, faith, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy, wisdom, healing, miracles, discernment, speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues, administration, evangelism, and many more gifts are spoken of in the Bible as gifts of the Spirit. And those lists that are listed in the Bible, neither of them are, um, neither of them match. There's some in one that aren't in the other, which shows us that these lists are not exhaustive. There are even more gifts than what I just read off. But Christian, know this. If you are in Christ and been redeemed from your sins, God has given you a spiritual gift 
for you to exercise. It may not be on that list, and it might be, but God has given you a spiritual gift that you uh, are to use and to exercise. And notice that these gifts are given out of the abundance of Christ's gift. Um, this, is the, this is the portion of this section that's a little bit kind of, what, what are you talking about, Paul? But I think the, the point is clear, even if maybe some of the interpretation is not. He says in verse 11, he talks, he quotes, um, he quotes, a, I said verse 11, I meant verse 8. Um, he quotes a passage from the Old Testament about somebody being victorious, um, who has gone to battle and has come back victorious, and out of the spoils of that victory, they're able to bless uh, their people. And that's the picture that Paul paints. It says that Jesus, he's saying, uh, he ascended on high and led hosts of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he, he talks about Jesus, uh, if he ascended, that means he had to have descended into the lower regions. Now, there's different interpretations of what that means, that Jesus descended. Some people will say that speaks of Jesus descending into hell and preaching to the captives there, like 1 Peter says. It says that 1 Peter um, says that Jesus um, preached to the spirits who are in prison. That's interpreted by many to say that Jesus went and preached his victory to those who had lived a life of rebellion, those spirits who had rebelled against him. He preached to them in prison. Another interpretation says he didn't go into hell, but he went into the grave, like the lower regions of the earth, right? Jesus died and was buried, and he rose from the dead. Uh, a third option, this is where I land, is this. That it's not that he went into hell or that the grave, but he came to earth. He descended from heaven to earth and did a work here. And I like that interpretation because it takes into account his life, his death, and his re- resurrection. All of those things work together Uh, To provide victory for us. But whatever the interpretation is, whether he descended to hell, to the grave, or just to earth, the point is this. He came, he conquered, and now he gives to us. That the point is all the same. That we are gifted, not just with salvation and forgiveness of our sins, we're also blessed with spiritual gifts. Um, He brings out all the spoils of his defeat of Satan and gives them to us that we might use them. So you might be praying and thinking, what is my gift? And some of you might find that you have a gift that puts you front and center, right in front of everybody all the time. Um, And that might you might say, man, that's a great gift to have. Some of you might look at your giftings and say, you know what? I'm just gifted to serve behind the scenes. And sometimes I don't even get credit for the way that I serve. And we might think one gift is better than the other. Uh, One gift is more needed than the other, or one gift is more special than the other. But that couldn't be further from the truth. No matter what gift you are given, it came out of the same abundant treasure house of Christ's victory over sin and death for us. You're all gifted with that kind of spiritual gift. Whether you're a preacher preaching um, because you've been gifted with the, the ability to teach or you, you are gifted with the ability to serve and to um, and encourage people one-on-one with exhortation. Maybe you're somebody who's gifted with the gift of giving and, and no one knows what you give, but you give out of the abundance because Christ has given to you that way. Whatever that gift is that you've been given, he gave it to you for a reason and it is a special gift designed for you. A lot of us, we've gotten gifts before in the past, and everybody loves to get a gift. But how much more special when you know that gift has been like 
homemade or specially ordered. Like they didn't just like go to Walmart and grab it for you. They ordered it from something. It took six months to be there. And it's like some special portrait that uh, some painter had to redo. Something really special because it was designed specifically for you. It's your name on it. Um, some of you guys out there are thinking of the home runs you've, you've made by getting your wife a special, unique gift. Some of you are thinking, I should learn to do that, right? <laughs> but whatever the point is this, unique, special gifts for people, that makes us feel special. And any gift that God has given to you, he designed it for you. He chose to give that gift to you. It wasn't that he took a lottery and was like, all right, Whitney Osborne, she can have this one. Lori, yep, you get this one. You know, that's not how he did it. He designed that gift specifically for you, that you might use that to build up the body. So healthy churches strive for unity. Healthy churches uh, recognize gifts. And as we kind of get into a transition here, he points to an example of somebody who's gifted. He points to these apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he says they are gifted and given to the church by God for a purpose. He uses these guys as an example of those who've been gifted in a certain way that are designed to use that gift for a special reason. Which brings us to this third point, healthy churches disciple one another. Look at the the purpose of these apostles. In verse 11, it, it lists this group of people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. He gave those to the church, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So when God gifts a pastor, and when God gifts that pastor to the church, his purpose, his design is to use that gift to build up the church. Right? He gave them to the church that they might be built up. And I think that's the same relationship that all of us have to the church. God has gifted you with these spiritual gifts that you might use those to disciple one another. So as you think of my relationship with you um, as the church, it's not like um, I'm, I'm creating something and I'm bringing, think of a restaurant maybe. Um, it's not that I make a meal and I'm the waiter that brings that out to you and you eat and then you leave. Really, it's more like you and I are working in the back and I'm training you that you might do this work that I've, I know how to do, that you can train somebody else as well. That's the picture here. It's that he gave these pastors to the church to equip the saints to do ministry. That I'm, I'm, I'm here to allow you all to do ministry, to do the work that God has called you to do. So discipleship, as we see in verse 13, it brings maturity. Discipleship brings maturity. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Discipleship happens, or when discipleship happens, maturity is a result. The church grows up. And notice what it grows up into, knowledge of the Son of God and uh, to the measure of full stat, uh, stature of fullness of Christ. I hope that kind of sounds familiar to you of things that I've been preaching to you since I took this pulpit, that we are called to become more like Jesus and that we're to do that together, becoming more like Jesus together. That's what this verse says. When discipleship happens, we become more like Jesus. So discipleship brings maturity in your life, but it also discipleship brings stability in your life. Look at verse 14. It says that we grow in maturity so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro Carried around by every wave of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, deceitfulness. This world is in opposition to the Lord. 
the thoughts, the ideas, the worldviews of this world are in opposition to the Lord. We can see that maybe expressed in uh, government organizations and things like that, but you don't have to go to the very top to see that. You see that just in the day-to-day um, when, we, when we think that life is about us and not about the Lord. Um, there's all kinds of deceitful examples in this world of how um, we can live our lives. And humans are fickle creatures. It doesn't really take much to change our opinion on stuff sometimes or to change the direction. But when, we're, when we grow up in this maturity, uh, when we disciple one another, we are provided stability in our spiritual life. And we're not tossed to and fro uh, like a little paper boat uh, in the middle of a lake. No, we, we, we have a sure and steady anchor in Christ, and we are growing up into that. Discipleship also brings participation. And if we look at verse um, 15, it says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, dot, 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 and when you get down to the end, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. I said dot, dot, dot because he puts a lot of stuff in this long, kind of weird sentence. But the point is this. We as the body, as we grow up into maturity, we make ourselves grow. The body of Christ makes itself grow in love. What that means is every person... Every part of the body of Christ participates in discipleship. Now, the, the, the pastor or the pastors of a church guide and direct and point to the direction in which we're supposed to go. But each person, each, each member of the body has their own role there to play in order to build up the body so that it builds itself up. Dennis did a great example earlier before we read uh, the passage that talked about all the different um, body parts of Christ. Um, we can do that again if we think, if we look at the people around us, we need to realize I'm responsible for their growth. You're responsible for the growth of the other people in this room. Uh, I know I guide and direct and lead you to do that, but this passage talks about how we all grow up into the maturity, that we might build ourselves up, that the church, the body would build itself up. Therefore, being connected and joined together, being unified, you're to use those gifts that God has given you to build up the church, to build yourself, and to build your brother or sister in Christ. The little conversations that you have before church, those are designed that you might express that gift and help your brother and sister get pointed back to Christ or encourage that day. Um, those little times where you serve in the nursery or in children's church or you come and do a work day or whatever it is, you're using a gift that God has given you to build up the church. Um, any service that we do for the Lord in, within this setting is not wasted. It builds up the church. And as we think and we seek to look at our lives and think, okay, God, what kind of, and this is my challenge to you all, to think what kind of spiritual gift do I have not that you can use that for your own recognition, but that you might use that to build the person up that's sitting next to you. Whether that's within your own home, your wife or your kids, or to build up um, those people who are in community group with you or Sunday school with you or just you serve together. How can I use this spiritual gift that Jesus has redeemed and given to me? How might I use that to build up the church? And it's your responsibility and my responsibility as well to make sure this church uh, is growing. If we think back to um, just when we, when we have our kids, we want our kids to be growing at a certain rate. 
And we want to be looking at our children and say, hey, they should be at this height and this weight by this age. We, we can do that in some sense with our spiritual life. We can look and say, am I taking steps forward? Is our church taking steps forward to grow into the maturity uh, that is in Christ, into the fullness of Christ where he's calling us to be? That we might live according to the call, that we might live up to that calling that he's put on our life. So church, I encourage you to strive for unity, recognize your gifts, and then use those gifts to disciple one another and build one another up. Let's pray.